2: Hello there. Welcome to today's New Books in Education, one of the podcast channels in New Books Network. This is your host Fei Zhao speaking to you from Gainesville, Florida. Whether we like it or not, the pandemic has pushed us to make many changes in our life, from working from home to following all the mitigation measures. In the previous episodes in New Books in Education, We talked with book authors about how the pandemic has impacted their field or the particular groups of students and families with whom they work. We look at the new expansion of the use of educational technology, the challenges that students who are learning English as their second language have encountered, and the experience of undocumented immigrant families. In today's episode, we shift our focus to doing educational research using digital tools. The topic is not new, but during the pandemic, a lot of educational researchers have found a new sense of urgency and irrelevance to look into it. Our authors for today's episode are Trina Paulas, Professor in the Research Division of Family Medicine at Eastern Tennessee State University, and Jessica Lester, Professor of Inquiry Methodology at, the Research, uh, at the Indiana University. They recently published a book, Doing Qualitative Research in the Digital World, to systematically investigate this topic. Published by Sage Press in 2022, Doing qualitative research in a digital world is a timely contribution to the field of social research methodology in a period when almost all the social research activities were moved to online. Even though we have gradually resumed our in-person activities, some researchers predict that many of the qualitative research activities will remain in the digital space. What does this mean to research communities and to the wider public? How are researchers going to do research differently? What has the new advancement of technology afforded to the current research practice? Doing qualitative research in the digital world takes a deep dive into these questions. Both novels and seasoned researchers will benefit from this book's comprehensive and in-depth discussion on digital tools and research methodology, which blends in together theories of technology, methodological theories, practical advice, and empirical cases. Now, let's turn to Trina and Jessica, the authors of doing qualitative research in the digital world. So hello, Trina and Jessica, welcome to New Books in Education. Congratulations on publishing such an important and timely book. Thank, Thank you. you so much. Thanks for having us. Yeah, and you know, as I talk with you, I realized that you are my second group of returning book authors for the uh, podcast channel, for the podcast episode I have been doing, and I think my first returning guest is Patricia Levy, and last year I interviewed Trina, and the year before I interviewed Jessica, um, two other different, you know, but Equally interesting books uh, looking for insights, transformation, and learning in online talk. That is uh, by Trina and uh, her co-author Alisa Wise, and uh, discursive perspectives on education policy and implementation. And that is by uh, Jessica and uh, her co-authors Chad Lock Miller and Rachel Gabriel. So it's amazing to see you again, what um, what productive authors you are.
1: <laughs> thank you. Oh, thank you.
2: It's good to be here again. How have you, how, how have things been since last time we chatted then? <gasps>
0: Well, you know, when we talked, um, COVID had already just started a few months before, I think. Um, And so, you know, again, doing work in the digital realm, um, whether it's online talk or just digital tools uh, is still relevant. And we're all still just trying to kind of surviving and trying to make it through the
1: pandemic.
2: Indeed. What about you, Jessica?
1: The same. I mean, it's just learning to engage in new ways of thinking about social science research and also just really what's becoming kind of a new way of thinking about how we live our lives as well.
2: Yeah, totally, I mean, I think we have seen so many changes um, over the past, actually more than two years uh, since the start of COVID. Um, the changes in all aspects of our social life and then if you think about that, you know, if you think about all the mitigation measures we have taken um, and all the, you know, political debates, all the controversies um, we, um, you know, the general public are engaging in right now. It's, it's a, I would say it's a historical moment for social researchers to dive into their research and um, it has it perhaps it's the time that you know we engage most in things like digital tools. So that's really just another way to say well, this is a timely book. Yes,
0: (laughs) for sure, for sure.
2: Yeah, and I know this is the second book you published on this topic. Uh, The first book is Digital Tools for Qualitative Research. And we've noticed that there is a shift of like how you frame it from digital tools to digital world, that the change of framing reflect some uh, shifts in your thoughts.
0: Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, it's a second book, but in some ways, it's also a second edition. And the difference was that we moved from Sage UK to Sage US in order to work with Helen uh, Salmon. And um, so we changed the title to kind of reflect that. You know, both that there was a shift in in publishers, but also because, yes, it's also a shift in framing. You know, one thing we thought about with the first book is that it's not just digital tools for qualitative research. It's also digital spaces. So we've been emphasizing the idea of needing to adopt or having already adopt digital technologies. to collect data to transcribe things like that, but that there's also digital spaces as a source of data, and a place to network and represent findings and so the idea of the digital world being what we're really concerned with as qualitative researchers. because we as researchers need to understand those tools and spaces but that's also how people humans participants that is their world it's a digital world out there and as qualitative researchers we need to figure out the best way of understanding those spaces um, and the best way of um, exploring the physical world using technology and of course COVID's just made that all um a lot more real uh for a lot of people you know jessica and i had started working on the second edition at a very <laughs> Jessica you you probably I mean you probably remember this too. it was a very leisurely pace <laughs> we had kind of started um, but we weren't you know working on it very hard and then Helen reached out as soon as the pandemic started I think it was the end of March April or I can't remember when it was of 2020 and she's like how soon can you get this book finished because they knew there was going to be a huge demand um, for the content so its it's been an interesting journey that's for sure.
2: Well, interesting. Oh, Jessica, do you have anything you want to add? Yeah, I mean, I'll just say that I think that um, one
1: of the things that sometimes surprises people after they read the book is learning that we didn't write the book in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. As Trina mentioned, Well, we did yeah. in the final chapter and in our first chapter, we do speak to it um, because, um, you know, the, the, final, the final few pieces of writing, we were all navigating it. Uh, we were already engaged in thinking through the book. And so it's just been kind of a luck, I guess, that it was um, a timely response to something that we were all as social science researchers having to figure out how to navigate it um, as we engaged in qualitative research.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think there is really this sense of, Maybe this started earlier than the start of the COVID-19 pandemic, but there is really this sense of like we are living in a digital world right now, especially during the pandemic. And I guess we are talking about maybe two different things in terms of like trying to compare this uh, book with your uh, first book or the first edition. Uh, The first thing is the advancement of the technology, which is now, which I think. I mean, I could be wrong, so correct me on this, but it seems to be something independent from the COVID because over the years, we have seen a lot of, you know, like new technologies um, that can help us do research better. But on the other hand, is this speeding up of like the adoption of the technologies or the new digital products that is driven by uh, the pandemic, or by you know social distancing and everything, uh, the constraints of the pandemic. So I wonder if if you could share um, a little bit of both. So on the one hand, we could start with maybe the advancement of technology. What have you seen, you know, over the uh, past maybe seven or eight years since you published your first book?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, You know, in our newest book, uh, we do speak to some of the most recent innovations that that specifically impact um, qualitative research practices. And some of them that are most obvious um, relate to transcription. So since we wrote um, the first book, uh, there's been a really significant advancement in automated transcription, artificial intelligence, being used for um, transcription, things like Timmy, Trent, there's really quite a a few options that um, folks have now if they wanna um, use other uh, technological approaches to produce the first pass of their transcripts. So we do speak to that quite significantly and and we argue in the book that that these technologies certainly are raising some important methodological conversations about the place of transcription. Uh, and we've, we really speak to that about all of the technologies that they, they do push forward conversations about how is this technology going to shape methodology. We also have seen a really big um, kind of burst around big data with um, new forms of social media rising every day uh, and how qualitative researchers make sense of and navigate the big data. I think it's one of the big questions um, that we'll be facing in the next decade, at least. Um, I mean, as a qualitative community, it's a question that we haven't fully grappled with yet. Um, So we do speak to that a bit in the book as well. And then, of course, um, qualitative data analysis software packages such as Atlas, TI, MaxQDA, and there are many, many others, they're constantly changing. So, in our new book, we do speak to some of those changes and, and the ways that qualitative researchers may want to um, engage those packages uh, in their research process. Uh, we also do some updated discussion around new ways that we can think about representing and disseminating our findings. Um, you know, an obvious one is. Is kind of this explosion of podcasts and this culture of podcasts, um, and thinking about how qualitative researchers might use that to reach a more diverse audience. Um, yeah, like,
2: how, like I mean, you are in the podcast now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah.
1: Um, so those are some, you know, some of the the big big kind of advances that we do speak to in in the book. Um, and I think, you know, thinking about the second part of your question is is what kinds of things are being pushed forward. For qualitative researchers now in relationship to COVID-19, from my perspective, a lot of what we're using as qualitative researchers to think about engaging in qualitative research in a socially distanced way uh, and in a virtual way, um, many of those tools are tools that have been there for us for quite some time. And we actually have quite a significant body of methodological scholarship that can support us in how we think about using those tools. So I think at this stage, um, I think there's probably some early beginning thinkings about, you know, depending on how long we kind of stay in this state, um, how might this change how we think about doing qualitative research, but also it's really pushing all of us to kind of wrestle with um, whether we've resisted it or not. We really often don't have a choice now of how might these tools that have been here for quite some time for us, how might they shape our research process and how might our research process shape those tools and the use of those tools?
2: So that's that's super interesting. And I, you know, as almost like the gurus of um, qualitative research software or, you know, just the, the digital tools for qualitative research, I, I'm just a, a little bit curious to know, was your experience of this shift well as uh, at the start of the pandemic i'm sure there must be a lot of people you know whether they are your students or your colleagues or you know just as Trina just mentioned your um, editors reached out to you when the pandemic started and asked you questions question like um, What shall they do at that moment? You know, since uh, typically qualitative research is such a field that, or such an approach that really relies heavily on field based work. And that means, you know, we will want qualitative researchers to enter into a field, like a physical field, and to do some really grounded work there. When the idea of like conducting field work is not quite feasible. Oh, what are some of the questions that you have heard from your colleagues and your students?
0: Um, you know, I mean, questions from them about, you like, know, what to do next. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, it's funny. We, you know, people did reach out even to us. I think they Googled qualitative <laughs> research and technology or online qualitative research and our names would come up. And so, Um, Like, for example, you know, we we got invited to talk to a group of (laughs) doctoral students in Norway of all places to kind of talk about um, yeah, to kind of share what how do you do? How do you do your research online? And I think that, you know, a big question is always interviews online. And of course, Janet Sammons is kind of the guru in that. So we often refer people to her work, because she's been talking about online interviewing, synchronous and, and asynchronous for years. She's got a couple books on that. Um, so, you know, often And this is true, this is true even in, there's a lot of parallels between this and online teaching, right? So not only were researchers trying to go online, but teachers are trying to go online. And of course, like Jessica mentioned, there's a long, um, we know how to teach well online. We've been studying for years. I mean, I did my dissertation in the 90s, late 90s on early 2000s on how to teach, you know, on online teaching. So you've got a lot of parallels of people trying to figure out how do we do these things online. And, you know, so there's people are usually trying to figure out how to put face-to-face methods online. And the challenge is that there's going to be um, benefits and there's advantages and disadvantages to to doing that. And so helping people think, I think how it may have impacted how we wrote the book is we're really trying to come up with a a process to help people think through the consequences of putting things online, both positive and negative, because it's not just good or bad. And so when people come to us with questions about, you know, how do you do interviews online? What, do, you know, how can we use social media? People turn to social media as a source of data because they couldn't get any other data, but it's not as easy as just, I'm going to use Facebook for my data. Cause there's a lot of, you know, ethical and other issues around that. And so, yeah, I mean, I think we had a lot of people wondering about how do you put traditional qualitative research methods online, um, And that could be a wide variety of things and I think for me I like to kind of push that a little bit that yes you know we can provide guidance grounded in what we know from the literature but there are always unintended consequences there are advantages and disadvantages and You know, online digital tools and spaces can actually impact methods It can help us develop more creative methods methods also have to change. Um, And so, in teaching it's the same thing you know if you don't know a lot about online teaching you think that you're replicating the classroom but you're not same with research you can't really just replicate, you know what we do in person you have to kind of think about it in a different way.
2: Well, that's uh, so cool to hear you talking about this, because, you know, after finishing the book, one thing I realized is that maybe, as you said, um, and you brought up some other literature as well, it has been a while since, you know, methodologies or uh, researchers invested in this topic of doing research online or using digital tools to do uh, research, but then the book, We're talking about today is really um, offers this very comprehensive or systematic way to think about these issues and think about these issues on different levels. Like, you know, uh, you just mentioned from the methodological level, uh, theoretical level, or then um, we have also some a whole lot of logistics, right? And also, you know, the ethics is an important part of this conversation as well. So uh, you you really offer a whole lot of things to um, our co- concepts for us to think around this topic. And for example, one of the concepts that I noticed and I picked up here is this idea of digital workflow. And um, Would anyone of you uh, like to elaborate a little bit on that? Sure, I can speak to that. And then maybe Trina can add further. Um, So this
1: is a concept that was um, one that the students that we work with initially introduced to us. And it was really centered on this idea um, that um, students in general are looking for um, a tool that does it all. Um, So one-stop shop. Um, and you know, rather than having, um, a reference management system and then having another tool that supports the organization of their qualitative data, and then another tool where they navigate to, to, um, engage in the data analysis, and then maybe another tool where they're creating some kind of representation of their findings. We were hearing from students, and and I still do hear this from students when I teach, um, methods, courses, focus on digital tools and qualitative inquiry that where's the one tool that can do all of this this for me. And so as we began thinking about this request, um, we began thinking about this idea that um, really what people are asking for is how can I d- develop a digital, work, a digital workflow that, that is personally aligned with the way that I engage in the research process and I engage with um, digital tools and digital spaces. And so in, in the newest book, um, we really foreground this idea of identifying where in your research process digital tools can support um, the research process and can also be like a co-researcher with you in that research process. So as an example, um, one of the things that we do in our own, pro- in our own research practice is um we use qualitative data, data analysis software as really our one-stop shop, the place where we both organize our um, literature reviewing for a project, we engage in literature reviewing in the, the software itself, we organize our data within the software, we engage in analysis, we write up portions of our um, uh, final research reports. Um, and so when we're speaking about digital workflows in the book, we're really inviting scholars to identify how they can best engage with digital tools and in some cases, digital spaces um, to support their own research process.
2: So, so Trina, do you have anything you would like to add? Or um, I think it's such an interesting idea and what, what really makes me wonder is, is there, is there really this one-stop, shop for um <laughs>
0: We want that, don't we? We're still look. We're still looking for it. No, not yet. I mean, qualitative data analysis software kind of comes the closest. But like, if you're doing a literature review, it doesn't have cite as you write features. I mean, you can analyze your literature and do a lot of cool things, but you know, it still doesn't have you know the main feature that people use Zotero for, which is you know inserting the congenerating generating the reference list and doing in-text citations. Um, but it, you know, but 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 QDA software is definitely getting close. But you can't, like, you know, generate really cool graphical graphical representations for your paper, or images or illustrations. I mean, they're kind of limited in terms of representing findings. But they are improving all the time. And I think um, I don't want to. I mean, of course, we can't take credit for this, but you know, we've been talking about this for a long time, and and you know, we work closely with a lot of these software companies, and I think once we started framing. Um, this idea of a digital research workflow, that it's actually, that these tools are not just for analyzing data. I've noticed that the companies themselves have really started talking more about how the software packages can be used throughout the research process. So I think they've also shifted the way they think about it, um, which is great because, you know, you're not then just investing in this software for one purpose. You can actually use it as a workbench, as as some people have called it, um, or it's a um, textual laboratory, uh, as Kono Pasek coined it years and years ago, that it's, you know, we don't have a, we don't have a lab like chemists, chemistry, you know, researchers do, but we have a lab, which is the software, but yeah, it's still imperfect. I mean, there's still, you know, places that still need work, but, but it gets, cl- it's getting closer all the time.
1: And I'll just add that I think um, recognizing that not everyone has access to, um, qualitative data analysis software, I've learned from a lot of graduate students that as they develop their own digital workflows, they figure out how to build their own one-stop shop. And I think that is something that um, can be really generative for a qualitative researcher is, is really being reflexive about um, at, the, at the start of designing a study, you know, what kinds of digital tools and potentially what digital spaces might I need to engage in to really get at what I'm interested in um, and how might I build um, a digital workflow that does what I'm hoping I can do with it. um, And I can work with the tools and spaces to make happen what I'm hoping to um, engage in, whether I have access to software or not.
2: See, I think this is very interesting because like, there are really seriously so many packages out there right now. I mean, if we are ta- if we were talking about this maybe two decades ago, I don't know. I feel like there were perhaps countable or several or like um, maybe Unvevo was just was just invented uh, in late nineteen nineties or i I could be wrong, but I just feel like there were so many proliferating all the different packages, and we we really need to now as researchers to engage in those um, research process, we really need to make a lot of decisions about digital tools and to navigate this uh, digital world. And I'm just thinking about, you know, for example, if I were a novice researcher, if I were a graduate student who just uh, launched or embarked on my journey of doing qualitative research, what are some of the things that I should be considering um, in starting to think about this workflow? Yeah,
0: so, you know, tagging off of what Jessica mentioned about access and equity and availability, really the first thing to do is find out what your university supports. And it may or may not be one of these. uh, packages like in vivo or atlas TI or max QDA. Um, but that's the first thing because you want to use what I mean your university may have made the decision for you because if, if the university is going to provide you access to in vivo and training and support and your colleagues and your peers are using in Vivo. that's what you should use because you want to have a community of peers around you um, that can help you as you learn it. Um, or if you're collaborating with a certain, you know, research group, you're probably going to want to use something that either is the same as what they're using or that talks to each other. Um, and that's been one of the great developments just within the last few years is that you can actually import a coded Atlas TI file into in Vivo now and vice versa, whereas that never used to be possible. Um, but you but not all software packages talk to each other. So, you know, you really want to start with who are you working with? What's freely available to you? Um, And then, you know, does your library provide a free workshop on Zotero? Um, Are there free options? Are there free alternatives to some of the tools? Um, Which apps are people using to do interviews? Um, And because that changes so quickly, I'll say that, you know, our book tries to take a kind of, Uh, bird's eye view of a lot of this because as soon as we would say this is the best package it's going to change you know for the books even out but there are some really good resources like the cactus networking project out of the university of surrey that really does really great software reviews so that's another great place to look to see if you're a mac user that's going to work with video data there's probably some platforms that are better for you than if you're wanting to really do a mixed method analysis of social media Um, so yes there's you know a lot of decision points there in terms of exactly what you want to do and thinking about the digital workflow as the actual research process that you need to figure out Um, you know, you know what you want to do, you're going to do a discourse analysis of social media posts. Okay. Now let's work on figuring out which tools are going to help you do that job. Um, while at the same time, as you're learning about those tools, you may actually discover that those tools let you use methods that you didn't even know that you could use because of the power of the tool. So it's this reciprocal relationship. And that's really what we're trying to scaffold, um, through the chapters in the book, especially through the reflexivity questions, um, to help people through that decision-making process.
2: This is so cool. You know, as you were talking, I almost feel like I should bring, uh, like, bring a piece of paper with me, start to take notes about all the tools, <laughs> <laughs> as, as I'm also uh, myself is, uh I'm also a qualitative researcher, and I do um, a lot of, um, you know, work. I. I indeed, um, needs to analyze a lot of you know qualitative data, for example. Um, but really, like one thing you brought up um, just now, Trina, uh, make me wonder. For example, you mentioned that some of the um, affordance of the uh, tools in terms of that you know they may empower researchers to do things that previously the researcher could not do methodologically so i wonder if you could give us an example on this
0: Jessica do you want to take that one or do you want me to go ahead I mean, I think the the I think that the um, most obvious example of that is uh, big data, social media data, um, and this is where um, qualitative research is really running up against methods. The limitation, now, I don't want to say the limitation of our methods that we have, but that we have to rethink our methods in light of the sheer quantity of um, text-based, naturally occurring. Um, online conversational data that's out there. And we have to know how to speak back to um, computational, linguistic, um, statistical researchers who are coming up with all sorts of methods to make sense of this corpus of data in ways that sound similar to what we do as qualitative researchers. Like I read one paper that they're calling what they do statistical discourse analysis. I almost fell out of my chair. Um, Yeah, and so I think if we don't learn how to talk with, um, if we don't learn to talk differently about how qualitative methods intersect with large quantities of data, Um, we're going to be left behind. And so I think that that's, you know, one way that data that so if if we think about digital tools and digital spaces, digital spaces are really looking for new methods as qualitative researchers to think about how we're going to be part of that conversation. Um, I also think that and Jessica might be able to speak to this a little bit more. Trans, if we think about some of the advances in uh, transcription, especially like AI-generated transcripts, um, uh, thinking about Zoom, you know, doing interviews in Zoom, or assuming that we can do interviews in Zoom and it automatically generates a transcript, which is awesome but that's also gonna challenge methods. And I know Jessica, you've thought a bit more about transcription, I don't know if you wanna share some thoughts there, but I do think there's gonna, there needs to be some methodological innovation there as well.
1: Yeah, I can add a little bit about transcription. So beyond even just the AI generation of transcripts, even just having the capacity to directly um, analyze like video data for instance, in qualitative data analysis software packages where we no longer have to envision, for instance, let me produce a transcript first before I do anything. Um, we can we can start to think about what might this methodology look like and how might it play out differently and what are the implications of that if I don't jump to transcription as I've always done in the past. And we have the capacity to think about that with some of these new tools. Um, and what that does is push us to think differently about some of the kind of underlying assumptions about why we have been doing things the way we've been doing, and how might technology kind of intersect with thinking differently about our our methods um, and the underlying assumptions of the methodology. I think I think also I, I really think that this big data thing is definitely a kind of the the thing to, that we'll have to think about wrestling with in the coming probably not just decade but decades. I think alongside speaking back. Um, I think also thinking about how we as a qualitative research community might learn and engage in some of the practices that are happening with folks that are doing um, analysis with big data from quantitative perspectives. I think that can help us think differently about our methodologies and methods. Um, And I just hardly know what I'm talking about. I've just recently been thinking about what might it mean for a qualitative researcher to think about the practice of machine Um, machine learning and how um, folks that are engaged in that kind of practice to make sense of big data, what about those methods and the practice of that might we learn as qualitative researchers to think about how we can take these large, like for instance, a large data set on Twitter how do we as a qualitative researcher do anything with something that's that large? Um, and how might we think about actually intersecting with some of the practices that are happening um, in a different paradigm and what might that look like? Um, so I also, I also think that where we've seen a lot of kind of methodological innovation in the qualitative community has been around visual methodologies with the idea that you know apps like Instagram have really exploded, um, our capacity to understand visual life uh, and how people go about making sense of their world um, in a visual context. And those kinds of data are pushing forward conversations around how do we analyze this data and what does that mean for kind of long-standing traditional visual methodologies and, and visual forms of analysis or other forms of analysis that perhaps we can Um, remake for these new kinds of spaces um, and new kinds of data. Um, And we do speak to this in the book. Um, We we, um, point to, you know, the ways in which new forms of data and new forms of technology um, really interact, as Trina was saying earlier, in this reciprocal relationship with the methodologies and methods, that they go hand in hand. That unlike our first book, where we were taking much more of like an instrumental kind of approach where we encourage people to just just start thinking about the tools. Um, we, in this book, really encourage people to always be holding both um, in their hands, so to speak, that we're not assuming that the tool stands alone, that the tool, yes, will intersect with methodology and method and vice versa.
2: Yeah, indeed. I mean, I can tell we are really touching on some very... Edge cutting topics here. I feel like, you know, the conversations about machine learning, about uh, natural language processing, about AI, and all this big data, all of these topics are, you know, important topics and also of topics that generates, generate a lot of public conversations and interest uh, across you know, a wide range of social science disciplines, for example. So yeah, so this really makes me think um, nowadays, see like previously, in the field of re- social research, or more like um, educational research, let's say, there is a, this entrenched gap or uh, divide between quantitative methodology or quantitative methods—you know, those methods that play with numbers, play with uh, that use statistics—and the qualitative methods, those you know, um, deal with uh, words instead of. Um, um numbers or statistics. So that's from your perspective, does this divide still hold? Uh, on what level or uh, to what degree the two sides start to talk with each other? And what are some of the benefits of talking with each other, working with each other as opposed to you know, um just you know stay in your own lane, so to speak.
1: Yeah, I I can, I can. That's a big question. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I think it depends whether the divide still holds and the context where the interaction is happening between folks that are bringing different methodological lenses to the conversation. Um, I do think, though, that there is really wonderful possibilities of thinking about how working within and across. Those methodological paradigms can help us understand things like how to engage meaningfully from a qualitative perspective as well as a quantitative perspective with big data that we can learn from one another around the limits and bounds of what we can do with data from a particular methodological lens. I, um, again, you know, graduate students often push my own thinking forward, and right now have a group of graduate students who are one in particular who's really interested in big data and um, from a qualitative perspective and is taking quite a few courses in machine learning and really thinking differently about what it means to do analysis with big data. Um, And recently, as an example, recently um, introduced to me when you're doing methodological literature reviews like of qualitative literature, um, introduced the idea of topic modeling. Like, wouldn't it be useful to bring not just kind of a thematic analysis of qualitative literature to the table, but also use R, a software package that historically has been used by quantitative researchers, to get a broader sense of the topics that are here by doing topic modeling. For me, that was, um, like, can we even do this? Like, what does this mean? Uh, and it was just a really good example of of pushing on the concept that we have to live in our own lane, but perhaps can learn um, across paradigms and work within and across our differences and use those differences as really a learning resource.
2: Wow. This is mind-blowing, using R to do literature review and topic modeling for qualitative studies. Well, wow. this is really something interesting and maybe something to add for your next edition. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, So, um, you know, we have been, uh, we have talked quite some uh, time about really the strengths and the new development in technology. And there is definitely this sense of curiosity and excitement about what can we, what can we learn from the new development? or How can we use, um, make best use of this new development in doing our work? I Now I kind of want to shift our conversation a little bit. I want us to talk a little bit about resistance. You know, we have those uh, very um, uh, fresh and very curious and very motivated grad students who are using R and thinking uh, ways the new development of big data, for example. But we also have some um, researchers who are still very much into this idea of using flashcards, for example, into, you know, um, just using a very conventional way to do um, data analysis or yeah, like just presenting their uh, research findings. So, so that really makes me wonder. Like, have you ever seen such uh, questions, or have you ever experienced such resistance, or what does that mean to, um, in in that you know in the in the era of COVID.
0: Well, I don't know about in the era of COVID specifically, but yeah, I mean, yes, even before COVID, um, which I get, or maybe obviously before COVID, if you didn't have to to change what you did, um, you know, if you liked the, your current ways of doing things, you may or may not be kind of a tech savvy person who wants to change. And, you know, when, when this question and when this issue comes up, which it always does, um, you know, I think the first thing is that if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Like if you, if you have a research process that works well for that kinds of questions that you want to answer, you know, there's no need to adopt new technology just because it's out there. And I feel that way about teaching too. You know, I mean, there's always this push to use more technology in your teaching, but nobody ever says why, you know, so if there's not a reason and you're happy with your process, that's totally cool. There's a few things though, that are going to happen if you're a faculty member, which is that your students are going to, and that's how I got into it, is because my students wanted to know, um, they had heard of this thing called in vivo. What did I know about it? Um, I went to graduate school before these packages were widely available. And, you know, they have been around since the 80s, but they, they you know, still are not widely adopted in that they're supported um, or even advertised. But, um, yeah, I mean, I I started use, shifting my process because students really wanted to know, and I felt like you know I needed to learn it because they were learning it, um, wanted me to help help them learn it. Co- other colleagues, younger colleagues, or more tech savvy colleagues would want to collaborate and use different tools, or there was just a problem that I had, which for me personally was that. Um, I had this huge data set that I just could not analyze by hand and that's why I ended up using Atlas TI was because I had a problem which was size of the data set and only technology could help me solve that problem by coming up with the digital workflow to be able to handle the volume of data, um, and so yeah, I think just helping people realize that you know we're not here to say you have to use the new tools and spaces, um, but that you know there if there comes a time that you want to or that you've got a problem you think technology could solve, here's a process, here's a way of thinking about it. But I will say that um this goes back to the previous discussion about big data you know there was a time when the human so qualitative researchers are studying the human experience we want to understand people's lived lived experience or just what's happening with people right like that's what we do and there was a time when we all interacted like we didn't have cell phones on us 24/7. We didn't have email. We didn't have um, this whole layer of social interaction that was mediated by technology. So we could ignore it. Qualitative research was watching what people do, observing, talking to them, maybe looking at documents. Right, those were our data sources. But that's not true anymore. Like most of our life, and this is where the COVID issue comes in most of our life is now lived on zoom or on some sort of technology mediated platform so we can't ignore that as part of the human experience that if we're going to do qualitative research we need to understand what's going on in those spaces so that's where i do think that you can push back on it i guess but it's going to get harder and harder as there isn't even there, I mean, I had to teach an ethnography class a year ago and it was hard to even talk about and I ended up using a hybrid ethnography book because I couldn't focus only on in-person ethnographic research in the middle of a pandemic. Um, So those are some of the things that come to mind, you know, when answering that question.
2: Indeed, I mean, I also had that moment got questions from students about, what about ethnography? How can we do ethnography at this time? And <laughs> it's like, well, it's a really tough question. You got me, <laughs> um, Jessica. Do you have anything you would like to add here? Um, I, I mean, I, I agree
1: with what Trina has been saying, and I, I think one thing that that we also are really sensitive to is the understanding that certain methodologies bring with them certain assumptions about technologies and about meaning-making processes. So I know I've heard from colleagues that use arts-based research that sometimes some of the technologies like qualitative data analysis software feel to them as if their meaning-making process is being disrupted and, and they like to make with their hands. Um, and so I think what can be really helpful is to think about how can that intersect with other kinds of technologies and recognize that, you know, a pencil and a pen and paper and you know art making things are also forms of technology, are, are ways that you're engaging with meaning making. So thinking about how you know our own qualitative methodologies might intersect with even how we're defining technologies and engage with them, I think we just have to be sensitive to that that folks think about it differently um, across methodological perspectives.
2: Yeah, so that's a very interesting perspective in terms of thinking about um, how different technologies or, you know, arts and technology intersect with each other. Uh, it's such an intriguing topic and makes me think a lot about, say, um, we you know, in terms of qualitative inquiry itself, it's not something fixed and you know static. It's evolving constantly. And the evolving, a lot of the new development involves introducing new media, new um um you know, um like approaches or new ways of representations, um, new ways to generate meanings, and how does that uh, intersect with technology and the constant development of technology. So that sounds like a really like a moving train. (laughs) It's like a topic we always need to come back again and again. And maybe every time when we come back, we have um, new findings and we have some interesting new things to talk about. Yeah. Mm Yeah, um, you know, with that, I, I still have another thing I want to I want us to talk about, which is really like some something got us um uh, got a lot of attention during the COVID, which is the um equity issue in relation to technology, or you know, some people may use the, I, the term of digital gap to describe it. You, so it only takes a pandemic for the public to realize that we still, you know, in a developed country like the United States, we still have a huge digital gap in accessing broadband internet and in accessing all the equipment like computers and tablets. You know, this is, a, and going back to Trina's uh, um topic about teaching. indeed, we see a lot of parallel here as well because you know, teachers have brought this up very frequently about you know how how it is impossible for say i I'm from Florida, so you know, for um. Y- you know, students in um, Osceola County or in Collier County, you know, students living close to Everglades, for example, they don't even have the broadband exercise, access. So it's impossible for them to do the remote learning. And that's true for a lot of the, uh, say, the rural areas in the United States. And then like when we think about this and think about all the, um, research that we need to do um, to um, re- relying on, you know, the use of those digital tools. I just wonder, you know, what are your thoughts on this issue here? Yeah, I can jump in
1: first and then um, Trina can add. I think, you know, a, a lot of writing years ago and it's kind of continued has around what technologies can do for qualitative researchers is this idea that it's opened up new access. So access to participants that we wouldn't been able to access otherwise in geographic locations that for a range of reasons you may not be able to travel to or participants felt more comfortable um, in a digital space versus an in-person space, recognizing that qualitative research has kind of normalized and put as taken for granted in-personness without recognizing also that that perhaps doesn't have to be normalized. So there's been a lot of literature over the years that's really pointed to the possibilities. Equally important um, is this point that you're raising that it doesn't always create more participant access. Um, Indeed, uh, I think um, Trina and I had looked up the stat at one point, over a billion people in the world don't have electricity. So obviously it's not opening all spaces up for qualitative researchers. um, you know, know, across the board. So uh, it's, there certainly is um, a digital gap. Uh, And this of course also relates to researchers themselves, not all researchers, as we've mentioned, have access to a wide range of digital tools or technologies. And so these are things that you certainly have to be really reflexive about and recognize that we shouldn't be orienting to, to technology with, you know, rosy colored glasses. There are pros and there are cons. Trina,
0: do you wanna add? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, you know, we have to really always think about, and this is this is one of the big, you know, when we talk about the consequences of, you know, digital tools and spaces and it, you know, there's positive and negative consequences and it's both for the researcher and the participant. Um, you know, it, it helps us do some things. It constrains us in other ways. Uh, same with the participant, same from the participant view. Um, Access preference, um, you know, people just might prefer to interact in a certain way or use certain tools. Um, you know, is there a time for them to get experience and up to speed? Um, is there, you know, one of the huge issues is just support, um, troubleshooting, um, just in time learning, you know that's you know and, and honestly if you read any of the literature on technology adoption and diffusion um, all of these issues are addressed and again I think we we can learn a lot about these issues around why technologies do or don't get taken up from um, general technology studies uh, instructional technology and then uh, we can learn a lot about that as research technologists as well
2: yeah so that's That's very interesting and definitely something I've noticed that um, just as you both of you mentioned um, offers a lot of food for thought and a lot of um, and raised some important questions for all of us, you know, as teachers and as researchers to think about here, Um, um, and and something that. You know, at least for me, since I'm not uh, um, part of this uh, field of educational technology, and I I noticed that started to enter the general public's uh, discussion realm, and perhaps previously this is. This is a more a uh, topic for um, a smaller group of experts, but now or policymakers. But now, you know, we've seen a lot of coverage from um, media, and this, this, you know, on the other hand, this might be a good thing because, like, it really is. Make people to start to think about that, and hopefully, you know, um, there will be some um, policies and some resources to really to support some positive changes here as well.
0: Yeah, totally.
2: Yeah, and you know, with that, I, I. We have talked a lot about the book itself, the contents, and you know all the things that the book make us to think and to uh, ponder over. For example, but then I, I have this question that I really want to ask about your writing, the process of writing the book itself. Like, what are some of the challenges of writing a book, you know, on a topic that is constantly changing? What are some of the most rewarding parts of doing this?
0: <laughs> you know, it's ironic because after every milestone um, in this area of study for me, I I I say I'm never gonna I'm going I'm never gonna do anything else about technology and qualitative research again. I just I just I just can't quit it. Like it just keeps following me around, and I say that just because it's really hard to stay abreast of all of the developments um, and the new tools and the spaces and it's you really can't think about it too much or it's overwhelming and exhausting like for example i just upgraded to atlas 9 like a year ago and now they're out with atlas 22 and i just like it just you just can't think about it so you know it's it's i think that um it's always a struggle um to stay up to date, not only with the new technology, and of course, students help with this, because they always know more than we do. Um, But it's so, you know, trying to keep track of all that in the literatures across a lot of different places, It's there's not one place to go to kind of keep up to date on this, this, this kind of type of research. And I think, you know, both Jessica and I really wanted to go beyond just a how-to manual like here are the tools and here's how to use them and really engage with it methodologically and theoretically and there's not a lot of examples for that um, but we really were pretty proud of being able to add at least a layer of that um, in this edition um, because the tools themselves change so quickly like i said like just having a how-to about software or about end note doesn't really add anything to the field because it changes tomorrow. So how do you engage with this topic um, that is really rewarding to work on because it is so practically relevant and people are always so grateful when we, you know, share our expertise and there's a huge demand for it. And like people know that it's important, but they don't know how to think about it. And so trying to be kind of two of the leaders in the area who are trying to pull together both the practical guidance and advice, staying up to date, but also thinking about it in a methodological and theoretical way. Um, It's hard, but it is also rewarding. So it's kind of very complex. And so it was fun, it's always fun to work together to write through some of these issues. Um, but, yeah, but yeah, it's a lot, and I keep telling myself I'm gonna like stop doing it, but it keeps following me around because it's not something a lot of people are doing. And so it's a it's a really nice niche area that, that we can contribute to. And I guess, you know, as long as people still wanna hear what we have to say, we'll, we'll keep writing stuff, I guess. Jessica, how do you feel about it?
1: Yeah, well, <laughs> it does seem like we can't stop. It's been well, we've been doing this for more than a decade now, <laughs> this area of methodological work. I think one of the things that I find people are surprised to learn about us, given we have written in this area and spoken in this area for some time, is that we don't own like every cool technological, <laughs> um, techy thing, uh, and we don't integrate every cool new thing in our own research practice. Um, that in general, I know for myself, and I've learned this about Trina, we're um, a bit skeptical about early adoption. And I remember when I first was working with Trina, she used a flip phone for the longest time. <laughs> um, so just as an example, she, uh, I wouldn't describe either of us as really even orienting to this topic in that way. I think instead we orient to the topic first as qualitative researchers and methodologists and what is really what we really tried to foreground um, in this new book is approaching any use, any adoption of technologies um, and or engagement in digital spaces from a methodological question and questions around like what is it that I want to methodologically do? what am I interested in studying? Um, what phenomenon of focus is of interest here rather than, hey, I see a cool tool. Um, what could I do with it? how could I, how could, how could this tool drive my, my entire thinking? That's really not what we're forwarding here. Um, and so that's one of the things that I think we had a lot of fun writing around in this book, um, is really centering methodological considerations as you engage in thinking about your digital workflow.
2: Wow. That's so cool. Cause, um, And I don't know other topics, but definitely for this topic, I feel like, wow, there's just so much to follow up and how you did that. (laughs) That There is a lot. (laughs) Your answer is definitely, you know, um, help me understand a little bit of the process and what anchors this pursuit. You know, instead of really, like what I really appreciate what Jessica said, just not, for example, you know, like instead of trying to track down every new development here, you try to anchor yourself in something more fundamental and something that can, like a campus or something, Yeah. So um, my next question will be, you know, how would you recommend this book for, um, say, adoption of the book for our, or maybe, you know, in other scenarios, um, um, researchers to use it?
1: Yeah, we wrote the book um, really in a way that we hope Qualitative researchers can use it as a companion, um, be it for um, their first introduction to qualitative research in general, or uh, a companion as they think about designing their own research and engaging in their qualitative research process. So the book itself is written... In a way where you can walk yourself from the early thinkings in a project, you know, what are the core kind of stages of the qualitative research process that I want to think through? How might I think about theory, theories of technology, also underlying methodological theories? And then we move the reader um, through the research process. So you're thinking about the literature reviewing process, um, you're thinking about different forms of generating data, different kinds of data. Um, different ways that technologies might intersect with the qualitative data analysis process and the place of transcription in that as well, uh, and opportunities then to also think about dissemination and the potentiality of of, um, making your work more public and accessible to others. Um, So you can, again, really use it as your first introduction to how you might think about this as your first learning qualitative research or for folks that might be really familiar with qualitative research, really helping yourself think through how do I develop a digital workflow um, as I think about a single project or just across my research program.
0: Yeah, and I'll just add to to emphasize something Jessica said, which is that this is one of the big differences between this edition and the previous one is that we spend a lot more time in each chapter talking about methods. So we don't just jump to, technology for data collection we actually tried to talk about data collection as a method and we weren't really we did not do that in the first edition because we had much more space limitations but you know we were kind of you know this book really could be a standalone book for um instructors who really wanted to kind of focus on um and that's why it's doing qualitative research in a digital world, as opposed to starting with digital tools for qualitative research. That was another flip that we made in the title that we're really focusing on the process of qualitative research and here are the tools that you could use. So yeah, um, yeah, that's so, you know, that, those are some of the things that we were thinking about.
2: Wonderful. Yeah, and we also hope that you know through the podcast, more researchers and more instructors can um, learn about the book and have the opportunity to really um, think with the book, read the book. With that said, um, I wonder what you are working on right now. You know, maybe sometime in the nearest future, we look we we look forward to having you again.
0: Yeah, I don't know if we're going to have another book anytime soon. <laughs> maybe,
2: maybe maybe in a few
0: years when we do, which, you know, I don't think we could even want to even think about another edition at this point. But you never know. Um, we are doing a few projects to, to kind of to keep this... Um, area moving forward, uh, you know, Jessica is taking the lead on a special issue for qualitative inquiry and I can let her talk a little bit about that. We're also trying to do offer some workshops, online workshops that kind of help research gener- researchers generate digital workflows, um, kind of some hands-on workshops and we're doing the first one in partnership with the qualitative report. Um, that'll be in February of 2022. Um, and then we're also, uh, working with some people who wrote some of the vignettes for the book, thinking about, um, and and so if the listeners aren't familiar with the five-level QDA, that's five-level qualitative data analysis framework that Christina Silver and Nick Wolf developed a few years back, um, it's a really interesting conceptual framework around how to think about software as a way to enact tactics Um, to to use tactics to enact analytic strategies. So it's a conceptual framework about the relationship between methods and tools. And we want to extend that a little bit with this challenging it a little bit to focus on how really tools and methods are shaping each other. And we've talked about that today in this podcast. Um, And so we're going to try to maybe give some examples or work through some case studies of how um, yes, you know, software can enact analytic strategies, but we can also so- software also offer. Sorry, software also offers creative ways to innovate methods, um, and also kind of including like some of the consequences of doing that that we've talked about today. So we're in the early stages with all of these things. Um, you know, it always takes a year after finishing a book to even <laughs> you don't want to think about anything else, especially in the time of COVID. Um, but yeah, I don't know, Jessica, if you wanted to mention anything about the special issue.
1: Yeah, sure. So so. We're really hoping that this special issue can um, kind of build further some of the arguments that we've made in this newest book. And so the special issue is centering around ideas related to um, the ways that digital tools um, as well as spaces might shift how we conceptualize qualitative methodologies. So there'll be some um, included articles in there that really conceptualize that and illustrate it. to get to some of the questions that you asked earlier, Pengfei, around what does this actually look like? So we're hoping the special issue will really offer some examples of that. And then also one of the things that we um, feel there's much more that can be said and done around in this area is really thinking more about the theories of technology that can shape the qualitative research process. Um, And so the special issue will include some papers that really get at that, like what specific technologies. So for instance, how might crip theory from critical disability studies intersect with a qualitative researcher's use of digital spaces and engagement in um, uh, this this kind of digitized work? Um, And then also new materialisms um, will be another kind of theoretical perspective that will be fleshed out. And then finally, in the special issue, we're we're also um, going to be attending to this notion of inequities um, related to accessing technologies and kind of the ethical implications of working within a technological divide. So we're really excited to see how the contributing authors to that issue can push these ideas forward and and in doing so kind of push our own thinking forward. And perhaps that will inspire us for the next book.
2: (laughs) Cool. We, We really look forward to having you again. So next time, like, I mean, Um, you know, in the nearest future when your next book comes out, please don't forget to let us know. (laughs) You're very generous. Um, Well, you know, you are being really generous and we really appreciate your time here and, you know, it has been An hour and we have taken so much time from you so really thank you for taking the time and to join us to talk about such a wonderful book and a very important topic. Thank you. Thank
1: Thank you. you. Thanks for the opportunity. Bye bye. Bye. Thank you.